Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. I mean, yes, there's the pronunciation guy, but that, those are never the greatest. I said, call me and, send, and sing it to me. And so he did. You didn't ask me for my Latvian because I, I was like fabulous when we sang that. Yeah, right. I but struggled so much. This oh is my the, God. But this is a different text. So that's why yeah, I yeah, well, put yeah. you into that. That was hard. That was really hard. How is your conversational Latin? It's Latvian. fabulous. Yeah. It's fabulous, too. You two are often just, just side I conversations know. in Latvian around the coffee Spectacular. Yeah. We are, as a matter of fact. But... Uh, is that, is that a thing in vocal lessons, just like conversational Latvian? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Any language, just go for it. Yeah. 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 Huh. So, well, <laughs> here we are with the next podcast. What is this, number 20? Uh, One? No, we're at 26. Oh, are we now? Okay. We've been doing a few of these over the years. Yes, I know that. I know. Yeah. I like to say uh, scheduled periodically. Yes. And it was his idea. He said, let's yes, do one I... with Mary Ann. Oh, that's sweet of you. Yeah. I wasn't sure if this was going to be both of us, so I have to, like, fess up with him in the room. No, just yeah. kidding. No. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Well, when you announced, I mean, the, the, the inspiration is that you announced that you're, you're going to step down and retire, and it was like, wait a second, that's a, that's a, a, a newsworthy moment. You know, not that we couldn't have come in and talked earlier, but... Well, you should be talking to the people who aren't retiring because there's... It's like a tsunami of people, at least my generation, who are. So, I don't know how long this is going to take or how it'll ebb and flow, but uh, there's a couple of questions that we sent before, but... um, We ought to sort of level set. We've certainly talked to Philip and we understand plenty about who he is and where he's come from, but what about you? Um, you know, what's the, when you meet someone for the first time uh, and you're talking about your journey, like where did you grow up and how did you get in to discover that music was a world that you were interested in? And, you know, what was your first instrument? Like bring me back into your childhood and kind of like how you sort of got going as a musician. Sure. Uh, well, my parents were both very musical. My dad actually uh, played in dance bands through college and played trombone, and my brother plays trombone, and my oldest son plays a little trombone. So there was a lot, a lot of music. My mother and I sang in church choir together. I was really fortunate to be in a high school that had a strong music program. So I started out, though, though before that, I started out as a flute player and realized that I was third chair and the first two in front of me were way better than I was. And it was time to abandon ship. So when they said, how would you like to play the oboe? And I was like, sure, let's try that. So I I, I went from being one of gazillion flute players to the only oboe player for a while. No competition. there. No competition. Right. But 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 the and the oboe is a mildly challenging instrument. Yes, Yes, it is. We had my my brother uh, uh, tried. He dabbled, dabble. He was an oboe dabblist, an oboist dabbler, uh, in the house. And I, I just remember the rest of us. In I think the word is enjoying, enduring, uh, uh, enduring the 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 embouchure and the yeah. discovery of the reeds and all of that good stuff. It's like 
It's sort of like having a sick duck walking around your house for several months. It's all about the reads. And yeah. so, yeah, and it's it's the bane of every oboe player's existence. You live and die by the read. So yeah. anyway, but, uh, but back to sort of the journey that I was on, uh, I was very fortunate to be, as I said, in a strong high school music program and especially a really strong choral program. My high school choral director son was Chip Davis, who founded Mannheim Steamroller. So, and Chip sang with Norman Luboff singers. So when I was in high school, Norman Luboff came and guest conducted my high school choir, which was pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, well, to see how, how we could yeah, be done at that level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so we were also sort of the guinea pigs for some of Chip's first musical compositions. Mm. Uh, so anyway, that propelled me. And when I was a senior in high school, I decided I wanted to be a band director and be a music major and literally didn't have my own oboe until I went to college. So uh, fast forward a little bit. I was in college, Ohio University. I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. And uh, I had a really uh, wonderfully supportive uh, college oboe teacher who was also the orchestra director and I think saw the management instinct in me and pushed me in that direction. So I helped uh, organize a tour for the orchestra, the college orchestra, when I was a freshman in college. I got a job at uh, a prestigious Eastern music festival in when I was uh, a sophomore in, in college, just by his recommendation, and kind of stayed on that whole orchestra tra trajectory. So when I left graduate school, I went to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I had my first really full-time professional job as the production manager for the Grand Rapids Symphony. And I like to kid that I've done sort of the Goldilocks of orchestras. I've done, I've run a community orchestra, I've been with a regional orchestra, which was Grand Rapids Symphony, and major orchestra, Phoenix Symphony, where I was education director for a while. Yeah. So I was on this whole trajectory as sort of a avocational oboist, but professional in the orchestra management world. When my oldest son joined the Phoenix Boys Choir at the age of seven, and I got recruited to be executive director of the Phoenix Boys Choir. So I spent eight years doing that, which is actually how I got to know vocal essence because my pre predecessor, Frank Stubbs, and I became national colleagues and would see each other a couple times a year. And I don't think I actually met Philip officially until I came for an interview. I think we probably knew of each other, but I'd never really met him. And the job opened up at vocal essence and I was ready to be out of Arizona yeah. and back to the North Country, and it the rest is history. So yeah. that's how I got here. Oh, we're looking at what is this? That's that's actually the inaugural uh, edition of a free weekly uh, newspaper in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and that's me, coach in my little uh, baroque attire, uh, co-chairing the. Began the Baroque, I think is what it was called, festival. And that, the troubadour standing next to me was an English, I think it was English, professor at Calvin College. But doesn't he look like he's right out of a yeah. it's uh, straight Rembrandt? Out of Shakespearean kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. drama. Okay, well, and that's me. Good... That's me. Uh, actually, I played the recorder in uh, undergrad. I played in dressed like that in a recorder quartet. So that was not completely fabricated. To which she's. The look on her eyes says, 
do I have to do this? No, the look in my eyes just says, gosh, this corset is really tight on me and I can't breathe at all. And I don't know how people played anything when they had to wear those up. So, and so you know, I'm assuming here at Vocal Essence, you rarely wear a corset. <laughs> that would be a correct assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So yeah, essentially the job opened up and you applied. And, and so Philip, I'm curious from your perspective, because Frank was the, the, the executive director at the time, uh, announced his retirement. What do you recall from interviewing Marianne? Uh, how many years ago was this? 20 and a half. 20 and a half. Do you remember the moment? What, the moment that? That, you, that Marianne walked in the door and, and you interviewed her and it was apparent that like, this is the one. I remember reading her bio, and so I knew that, and she walked in, and I'm just one of those people, as you know, who is really good at understanding personalities and saying, okay, yes or no, and she walked in, and I just went, yeah, we're going to hire her. That's it. But that... But that's very true, I think, of, of human nature, right? That we, we often make, we meet someone and, and it's said that something, I read a, a data point that like, you know, a vast amount of comprehensional information about a person, when you meet them for the first time, you receive it within like a second or two, you know, that your, your understanding of that other human being is very quick, which makes sense when you think about our, the history of humanity, right? We had to make quick decisions about, about each other. But so you decided within a fraction of a second that Marianne was the one mm -hmm. and yep. here she's been for 20 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Marianne, I'm curious. So what was the role you signed up for 20 years ago and how has that role evolved over the last two decades? Well, uh, for one thing, the title was different. It was actually um, managing director, I think, was the title Frank had. I negotiated it to be general manager, mm -hmm. but the, the reporting relationships were different. I mean, Phil, Philip was, was, was all things at that time. His, his title was founding artistic and executive director. And after I had been here for a while, actually at the board for probably five years or so, I'm going to say, at the board's um, instigation, they adjusted the org chart so that my title moved to executive director and we both report equally to the board of directors. So that was a sea change on paper for the organization, but I don't feel like it ever really changed um, our working relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and so essentially you've been the executive director yeah, for, for the last 15, 15 years. years. Yes. And, and, you know, elevator pitch, like what does that mean? What, as the executive director of Vocal Essence today, what, what, what does that encompass? What do you do? Well, my, my quick uh, off-the-cuff response is I'm the one who signs the checks. So, yeah. But I, I'm the one who's ultimately responsible for the administrative end of the organization. And I'd say in the evolution of the organization, it's, it's, um, I spend more and more time with people and with my staff and with making sure everyone is working together smoothly. And I you know, I often say to people, it's all about the people you work with and how you can keep them happy and working together well, and everyone sort of rowing in the same direction, which mm -hmm. doesn't always happen. Yeah, within any organization, right? Like personalities and 
and setting vision. And so, yeah, that leads to an interesting sort of challenge within arts organizations, but, but honestly within any kind of organization, is that there's a vision we aim as an organization to achieve X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, we've got certain audiences that we seek to serve and certain objectives that we seek to achieve, right? You know, either financial or outreach or whatever, whatever they happen to be. But within a, an organization like Vocal Essence, um, the, the sort of the, a lot of the driver of it is the, the programming and the, art, the artistry like for lack of a better label, mm -hmm. right? And so that's um, the artistic director's kind of purview, right? So pick the music, uh, uh, help cast, you know, all of the players that we need to achieve the art. Um, how do you, how does an executive director and an artistic director kind of collaborate in terms of ensuring that the artistic vision is even possible um, you know, is achievable, is operational. Talk to me about that kind of the relationship that the two of you have to kind of achieve a vision year in, year out, decade in, decade out. Well, in some instances, I my role in this uh, regard is the bad cop because the vision and the artistic dream and the all of those things tend to reside in Philip as the and the the other artistic staff members. And then my role often is to come in and say, well, let's step back a minute and say, do we really have the capacity to do this? Is now the time to do it? Are we better off if we postpone it a little bit? Does this fulfill our mission? And so it's that part of, that's the bad cop part. The good cop part is really helping to make sure that the dreams become reality. Mm -hmm. And and what the, what that means? I mean, the fundraising is obviously a big part of it, and Philip is a master in that regard, which we're very fortunate to have. Mm -hmm. A few other organizations have that, but it's also making sure that everybody on the rest of the staff and and our volunteers are in the place where they share the vision and are going to work hard to make it be reality. Yeah, with the resources that you have available, right. Right. How, how how do you maximize them? What's your take on all of this, Philip? Trust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Expand on that. Expound a little bit. Well, my take is that Marianne and I have a relationship that is built on trust. Mm -hmm. And I know that in both cases... She can trust me. I can trust her to make it work. It certainly means that wh whoever is in that executive director position uh, needs to have, you know, a, a depth of knowledge about music mm -hmm. so that it's not somebody who, who would be in that job who has, you know, who doesn't really know what music's all about. Not necessarily choral. But just music, I mean, you know. So that they understand what they're executing, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, well, and also just an interest in, you know, that if I propose, you know, a composer that she doesn't know, oh, that's okay. Let's find out a little bit more about this person and see why did Brunel choose this composer. So there's, you know, that kind of interest in what goes on is part of, I think, what happens. But it basically 
uh, you know, I mean, I just recognized when she first arrived that, you know, this was a this was going to be a good relationship. Not not that, you know, we don't push back at each other. And as, as she was saying, you get things where it's like we really can't afford to do all this. OK, what can we postpone? What can we do? And I realize, you know, there's just, you know, limits to what. And then in today's world, there's also a lot of uh, nitty gritty stuff that Marianne knows I find real boring. And so, yes, what a surprise. And so, you know, the, I'm going, go ahead, do it. That's not something that I really want to spend a lot of time with. What's your take on that? Well, I'm going to go back a step because I'm smiling at his comment about musical knowledge. Because yeah. especially when I first came uh, and he would say, we're going to do a whole program of the music of Bassoni. I don't know. So pick pick some name. And I would be like, I've never heard of this person before. Phil. And he, he was, and, and you went and, to music school. Yeah, and I, I would. I have an almost master's in music history. And he would say, everybody knows him. I'm like, Never heard of him before, Philip. And so it would sort of be a wake-up call, and then he'd get kind of contrite and say, oh, well, okay, maybe we should look at something else. So, <laughs> so, so, so I was his conscience in that so, regard. So, so Philip can get really excited about something really obscure and niche, and you kind of help him realize that maybe not everybody is as excited about the obscure and niche as you are, which which essentially means it's like it's just going to be more work on behalf of the organization to attract an audience in for that to help them understand why should they care about a niche and obscure. Well, and and this has been one of the yin and yang of this organization since I've been here is, you know, we had a tagline for a long time: expect the unexpected. We yeah. pride ourselves in doing music that nobody else does, and literally the response we've gotten for decades from our audience is. A combination of we love that. We love coming to Vocal Essence to have new experiences. And equally, we want to have a warm and fuzzy, we want familiar. So, I mean, it's like, well, you can't have both, you know, or you can have one over here and the other over there. And so that's, and you see that in the programming Philip does too, that it, you know, Welcome Christmas is in essence usually our warm and fuzzy experience. And then there are other things where it's introducing the audience to new experiences and trusting that because of his curating ability, there are mm -hmm. going to be things that are accessible for people. Yeah. Well, so that leads to an interesting thought about how do you both uh, define the audience, Vocal Essence's audience here now, 50 plus years into it, you know, you've had 20 years to, to experience this, Marianne. Um, how do the two of you kind of like define and then reconcile differences around the audience, broadly speaking, for vocal essence. I'll jump into that because that is actually top of mind concern and issue for us now post-pandemic. Mm. Our audience is shifting dramatically. Mm. The people who were the diehard vocal essence subscribers either can't or aren't coming back in person. Mm -hmm. um, and we are really... Uh, working hard to find that next new audience. Mm -hmm. I think in my, from my perspective, what's the most exciting to me is the singer uh, roster that we have now. We have a number of new singers who are a younger demographic by and large who hopefully are going to help us pull in that next generation of audience. Mm -hmm. But 
but it's it, you we would have the same conversation probably with any other performing arts organization everybody's audiences are shifting and everybody's top of mind about how do they engage with people who want different kinds of experiences than they did 20 years ago so and that's true of sports organizations it's true of entertainment organizations it's true of tourism it, it, it's humans evolve and so yeah. you're, you're the definition of your audience naturally must evolve but what about you philip how are you how are you feeling about the the shifts and changes in what constitutes the vocal essence audience well I think, you know, it's a challenge and I love challenges. So it's like, okay, how can we find those people? And part of it, you know, is information. I have just always found that if people have more information, they're, that makes them fascinated about something. Oh, you know, doesn't necessarily, if they go to hear it, they may say, yeah, I'm glad to know all that. It doesn't. I don't know if I still like that piece. Mm -hmm. You know, they might, right. but might not. But I think people, um, I think what we have tried to do is, okay, what can we perform that um, broadens the look of the audience? Uh, at the same time, there are things that we've done in the past, maybe a long time ago, that it would be nice to bring back mm -hmm. so that you don't want to just say, we. We can't repeat because we can repeat and we have repeated and we will continue for certain things that I think a younger audience uh, is going to take to it. And so I think another thing that's happened more in recent years has been more uh, thematic thinking in terms of just even titles of, of, of concerts, giving it a title that goes you know you choose you find music and then you say what do you want to call that what's the commonality across yeah, right. five different pieces yeah, of music exactly well just to help someone understand like what is this concert about what's its what is its theme right yeah and and audiences have in a lot of ways they i think they've become much more discerning and more sophisticated about the messaging by and large they don't want to just hear five pieces that are pretty and sound good together. They want that through line. They want mm -hmm. that backstory. And mm -hmm. there's a huge movement, especially in the performing arts world, but also actually, I shouldn't say just performing arts in the uh, museum world too, about uh, interaction. And you know, this whole generation who wants to be a part of the art experience, not just a recipient of the art experience. Yeah. And we have the, the beauty of the choral art form is we don't have all those barricades. We don't have the instruments that you have to be able to have expertise to learn. Everybody can sing, and right. there's an option. And Philip has been very thoughtful about that and tries to program something the audience can participate in on every concert. So we're, we're dipping our toe into that interactive space. So just focusing a little bit more on, on the role, I'm curious from the two of you, it's like, so when you think about an executive director, what does that individual do uh, for an arts organization that like that matters the most? Where do you how do you create the greatest impact for uh, uh, an arts organization as an executive director? That, that's a good question. I think it's about um, helping to be a spokesperson for the organization in the greater community. Um, it's it's certainly. Uh, 
setting a, a compass direction for the staff so that they stay focused and working together. Um, it's, it's also, you know, I think I've spent a lot of time building, as, as has Philip in his own space, but building national relationships for the organization mm -hmm. and helping to sort of uh, elevate the, uh, the expectations of the organization. Uh, one of the things that I'm focusing on a lot now is, especially as our community programs have grown and we're addressing how we talk about the organization, is to really hone that messaging so we can, again, engage those people who don't know about us in a more effective way. So I think figuring out how we, we articulate the work we're doing is an important part of this role. Seeing the strategic plan in, in, become reality is clearly top of my list. Yeah. How about from your perspective as the artistic director, when you look at the, the AD role, like what what, how do they help you, how do they help the organization be most effective? Well, I think what Marianne said is true. I think that the executive director um, offers a um, consistency uh, to the staff, a consistency to the people in the community. Uh, she has, in this community, you know, reached out into areas that uh, uh, she's been very effective, whether it was with like the State Arts Board, working with some of the the people, what do we call it? The, what's the arts? Minnesota Citizens yeah, for Citizens the Arts. Yeah, Citizens for the Arts. You know, so I've she's- I've been on that board for like 18 years. <laughs> yeah, so she's been very involved in that, which is very helpful to us. Uh, and also what's the uh, women's- Minnesota Women's Economic Roundtable. Right. I can't belong to that. No. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Right. So a club you can't be a part of. Isn't that's that a right. Groucho Marx line? So <laughs> you know. So she's follow. I mean. So there are ways in which she's enhanced what we do in in different ways, and we go through. But I think it's more just acting as a uh, a rock that people just know they can count on and. So, and then again, like, how do you, we've talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious about the, how the two of you view the idea of, um, you know, collaborating successfully. Because, you know, in our, in a, in a for-profit corporate organization, you essentially have a singular CEO, right? They sort yeah. of singular individual sets, sets the agenda. And, and you talked about this, Marianne, in terms of arriving and, you know, sort of Philip held all the roles, right? So as a founder, and this is very true of startups and entrepreneurs, right? So the founder sort of sets the vision. But if the thing is going to scale at all, right, whether it's a, a, you know, a startup or an arts organization, like you kind of have to start sharing power and you have to start uh, delegating and you have to sort of, as, as the two of you have mentioned, trust others to kind of take the idea of something and each in your own way, evolve it and grow it. Right. And, and I'm just curious, like after, you know, 20 years of working back, back and forth together, how do you succeed in collaborating? Ah, that's a great question. Uh, I, you know, there's an ebb and flow to that. And I'd have to say that one of the lessons I've learned over the years is to choose the, the places that I want to try to steer the boat one direction or another. Mm -hmm. And, and Philip, as a founder and an incredibly entrepreneurial person, it is, is, 
visionary in that regard. And there are times when I say, okay, I'm just going to wave goodbye from the shore and let the ship sail over here. And there are other times when I say, no, let's, let's sit down and talk about whether this is really the right direction for us to go. So I think the, the short answer to your question is, is choosing the, the areas where you want to have the most or try to have the most influence and then just letting other things go. Yeah. And I think that's how we've stayed successful for 20 years is I'm not, I'm not sitting there saying, no, you shouldn't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. But every once in a while, I'll say, you might want to not try this quite yet. So it sounds like, it sounds like candor. You just have to be candid yeah. with each other and recognize yeah. it. Like it isn't about feelings per se. It's just about you know, an, another perspective. Well, and it's tough because, you know, these are all his children <laughs> in many ways, well, you know? Yeah. yeah, like, okay, we're going to talk about your your daughter here and <laughs> and maybe this is not the time to favor this daughter and maybe it's time to move somewhere else. So anyway. But Philip, from your perspective, like, how do you feel about that in terms of, you know, you created an entity, right? And for a long time, it was kind of, up to you whether or not it sort of lived and thrived and but you i think you also recognize that like hey other people are going to help me scale this right that's the secret there so from your perspective how does an artistic director and a founder interact successfully uh with an executive director well uh first of all if you trust that person then when that person <clears throat> has ideas uh you're interested in in listening to those ideas an example would be <clears throat> that you know she would know other people that i wouldn't know that might make good board members yeah and i go great because there's no way i'm going to know everybody right. and i and at the same time we want a very diverse board um though we know we can't be all things to all people so she's been very uh thoughtful in in helping to find those parts of the of the operation that need uh, attention that I don't uh, necessarily have the have the skill to know how we how we can make that happen. Hmm. Well, you you both mentioned uh, the board, and and I'm curious about um, a couple of things. So, at what point? Does does an organization like uh, an arts organization like Vocal Essence a realize we need a board, and b what is the purpose from your two you know as an executive director as an artistic director and founder like what is the purpose of a board for an arts organization just to start there, Marianne? What, what, how about well, you know, interesting you should bring that up because there's a lot of conversation in the nonprofit world about whether that historic nonprofit governance model of volunteer board that oversees the operations, if that's really valid as we move forward in the 21st century. Mm. I mean, you could read reams of opinions about whether it's the right thing or not. However, it is what we live with in, in the world of the nonprofits. I think what, um, what I've seen evolve with this board, it, to be perfectly honest, is it, Philip sort of addressed it sideways a little bit. When I came to the organization, the board members were all directly connected to him. Yeah. And that's evolved in the organization in a positive way to where we have board members now 
who are, have very different voices and different roles. And I think that's really critically important as this organization looks to its next 50 years. And, and the board is, in my opinion, especially in the last five or so years, really taking to heart their leadership role in the governance. It, it used to be a scenario where they would show up for meetings and hear the good news. And that was kind of the beginning and the end of their involvement with the organization. They'd give money, obviously, and come to concerts. But they're, they're much more involved now and more interested in addressing sort of the bigger uh, directional kinds of conversations for the organization. Yeah. Well, and as the organization grows in mm -hmm. scope and funding and talent and opportunity, it would make sense that the board would, would do so likewise. Philip, from your perspective, like, I mean, you, again, you had an organization for a long time. And at what point did it occur to you that like, or how did it occur to you that like, wait, we need to have a board? Like, what was that? What's that journey been? Well, we added it almost at the beginning. Really? Well, you had to. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's part of the model of a nonprofit. Yep. I mean, I don't know if it's if it's was this a legal constraint? Or? You know, I think I, I it's been protocol, whether it's legality or not. You know, I should I should look at the articles of incorporation. I can't answer that question. But but I mean, the model for a nonprofit 501c3 is that there's some sort of a volunteer leadership board. So you, you kind of had to do it. I did at the beginning. And the first people that sort of were maybe they I don't know if. I'd have to look back and see in the first year if we called it a board, but but there were five or six people, and uh, you had, and they all had kind of duties mm. to do. Uh, one person, John Caldwell, mm. printed our programs, got all those done. You know that was his his deal. Yeah, and uh, you know so it it you had people doing various parts that helped with fundraising. You know, I think the other thing that you're always hopeful is that every board member is going to be a uh, a cheerleader mm -hmm. for you in the community. And they're going to tell other people and they're going to spread the word about what you do and what you're doing in music and for the community and all of that. So I think, they're, you know, you're looking for that to happen. But as Marianne said, it definitely has evolved that uh, they have now taken on roles beyond what might be just considered, you know, coming to concerts, right? Uh, paying some uh, amount of help, whatever, to get more involved. I think the challenge, and Marianne and I have talked about this, the challenge that we both have is to try and stay, uh, to keep every one of those board members involved. Mm. And it really is hard when you've got 28 to 30 people, you know, and some of them are very involved big time. And some of them, you just have, it sometimes takes a while to figure out what's the niche that they really resonate with and that they would like to help with. And where they can add value. Exactly. And, and how big is your board right now? It's, uh, by, by, as he said, 20, I think we're at 28. Our bylaws cap is 30. But we have some ex officio board members too. But 28 people, mm -hmm. that's a lot of individuals lot. to, you know, maintain contact with and, you know, and, and, and find a place for, as you say, and things like that. 
summing things up here, you know, you've, you, you, Marianne, you've been here for 20 years, and I'm just curious from both of your perspectives about like when you think about the story of joining the organization and getting your feet settled and people joining and leaving, et cetera, to the ebbs and flows of the organization. What are some highlights that come to you, come to mind for you, specifically as like an executive director? You know, like when you think about, oh yeah, I think that like, you know, if you were to, you know, looking back and telling your story of being at Vocalescence, you were proud that what occurred? Well, I'm proud that the community engagement programs we have have grown so organically uh, and um, thoughtfully and the impact we have in so many areas now, the fact that we're engaging singers that are our youth, teenagers, we're engaging young mothers, we're engaging older adults, and we're doing it in an authentic mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of uh, through line for the strategic plan. The other thing I think I would say, and this is probably really personal, is I think some of the highlights for me have been some of these major uh, artistic collaborations we've done. I mean, certainly top of my list was the Festival of the Music of William Bolcom we did and the, the Songs of Innocence and Experience where there were like 300 people on the stage of Orchestra Hall. And it was just the, the, the organization having the capacity to pull that off like we did. I'm very proud of that. And, and again, kind of even more personal, it's been really uh, an honor for me to have had the opportunity a couple of times when um, Vocal Essence collaborated with the orchestra I play in the Metropolitan Symphony, and I actually got to sit on stage and play with Vocal Essence and play under the baton of Philip. So that, those were really uh, memorable moments for me, and there's been a lot of that. I think as executive director, and I've said this in advance of my retirement, the thing I'm the proudest of is the incredible uh, strength of our staff. And, you know, what's really amazing, and I share this with colleagues, the median tenure of one of our staff members now is 10 years. Wow. And that's unheard of. Yeah. In, in any, whether it's an arts or nonprofit or corporate world, it's just unheard of. And that has a lot to, to say about Philip and his vision and also the, the integrity of the organization. So that's really... I'm proud of that, and I'm very mindful of how the search unfolds for my successor so that the staff is valued in the process. And we'll have two staff members who are going to serve on the search committee. And this is also a place where our board is really going to step up to the plate because the board is driving uh, the search committee. Yeah. So that's exciting. Well, Philip, and from your perspective, um, when you think about, you know, the consistent 10 years, that's a, it's a really interesting mark to think about. The, the, the sort of reliability that you can depend on in a staff when the average member is sticking around for 10 years or more, you can, again, build up trust and, and build up familiarity. Um, what stands out for you in terms of uh, the highlights of, of Marianne over the last 20 years? Oh, well, I think definitely uh, she's been someone who has seen where the organization needs to go in terms of administration, in terms of new areas. You know, I'll give you an example. When all of a sudden everybody, and I mean everybody, started talking about access, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. I mean, 
big time. And I think also just in helping to see in from her vision what the board can do in a broader sense than they were doing. And I've certainly seen her, you know, stepping up to make that kind of thing happen. Um, and then, you know, definitely her way of encouraging all the staff. That's, I mean, you know, it's like, okay. And, you know, with a staff like this, what, you know, now we are 11 of us. Actually, 12. With two part time, if you can. Yeah, if you call them. Yeah. Rihanna. So, you know, just figuring out the strengths of them, but also being able to say, okay, now wait a minute, not everything's going as smoothly as it should. So now let's see how we can find a positive but persuasive way of uh, making that. Uh, making change and moving making forward. Making change and moving forward. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So think, you know, you, you've you've announced your retirement. Uh, you know, you're working on on identifying a new candidates. What advice do you have? You know, or and, and maybe, maybe just broaden this. You know, when you think about arts organizations in general, vocal essence being one. Um, what you know, and, and Marianne, I'll start with you. Like speaking to people like you, but that are are now starting out in their careers. What advice do you have to anyone aspiring to an executive director role, not just at Vocal Essence, but at any arts organization here in 2023? What's critical in, in understanding and succeeding in that role? Um, you know, I don't think actually it's changed that much. I think I would have said the same thing 10 or 20 years ago, which is find someone who can mentor you. I, and I always say to people, yeah, it's great if you have all these degrees and that's that's certainly important to have the knowledge base uh, mm -hmm. in management areas. But the more important thing is to find someone who you can learn from, who's who's been down that path mm -hmm. and who can see the skills in you. And as I said earlier in this conversation, I was really fortunate that I had a teacher way, way back who saw talent in me and encouraged me to go in a direction I would have never thought of. So you know, use your connections, use your networks. I can't say enough about that. And and also don't be afraid to take chances. And I think that's harder and harder for young people coming up now. They've got all this college debt and, you know, there's a lot, a lot of baggage, but find a mentor and take chances. How about you, Philip? Well, I'm always hopeful that anyone in this field is going to... Uh, be curious about things and so that as new as new doors open uh they're willing to step through the door and see what that might offer as opposed to saying no it has to be this way and be rigid and being rigid which doesn't work uh you really need to be able to you know look in a you know on a broader field of what's out there. I have no clue. I, as far as this search coming up, uh, I have no clue about who might apply. And I have no idea about what exactly we're looking for. I think a lot of that just has to do with the candidates that we get and see, um, you know, where it's going to be. It kind of reminds me of uh, hiring a singer and going like, well, let's see. Uh, is this is this person 
what kind of voice is it? How can I use that voice? Um, you know, the quartet that we put together, the, the, you know, the one, the quartet that I put together for these home house concerts. These are not, these are four people that never sang together and they've just done bang up job. They love it. And the same with the duet people, you know? So it's like finding folks and then hopefully you get there and then they have their skills and can you match those up to make it work? So I'll, you know, I'm just very open about, well, let's see what happens. I mean, you know, you do have people who just say it has to be this or it has to be that. And I just go, no, folks, you can't do it that way. It, you know, it, it has to be a man or it has to be a woman or it has to be BIPOC or it I go, no, you know, let's just see who's out there and see who, who, who rises to the surface. Well, and I think this is going to be a, I think this is a perfect opportunity for this organization at this time in its 55 years of existence to also take a look at what they need. And, and I think it's going to really give the board a meaningful role because that is going to be a part of this search process is for the committee to sit down and really assess the future of the organization and the skills that they need. And the skills that they need subsequent to me may be different than the skills I had. Yeah. So I think it's, a, it's, it's an exciting juncture for the organization. Yeah. So what's coming up here in the next couple of weeks? What's, what's, what's day to day here for the two of you? What are you gearing up for? What's the next couple of days and week? What, what are you getting ready for? Well, getting ready for the end of the year and making sure we uh, balance the budget. Uh, getting the 24-25 budget lined up. Right. That's top of mind for me. Yeah, that's your cause celeb. Yeah, well, and yeah, and if, for us, it's, it's such a challenge because not having our own home, as it were, we're beholden to all these different venues. Uh, and yeah. so putting a budget together when you don't know where you're going to be doing a set program yeah. is a real challenge. And it does. It, it seems like it's getting harder every year rather than easier. Because, for instance, if you say, well, we want to do one or two concerts at Orchestra Hall. Right. Well, we have to wait till Orchestra Hall says what dates they have available. Right. And you kind of like, okay. So, you know, meanwhile, Philip, would we please have a budget? Yeah, well, the budget's going to depend on where we're going to be. And it's right. Like, ah. yeah. But it's positive tension. Yeah. yeah. Well, so much of it's that sort of outside of your control. Yeah. Right. But we still need to get a season together and we need to announce it and we need to yeah. get a budget approved and, you know, all those things don't go away. Yeah. That's the, that's the, the joy of the work, isn't it? And then at the same time, we're getting ready for Welcome Christmas and the Bach uh, Christmas Oratorio. So, I mean, it's just, you know, rehearsals go on and uh, PR for all of that and what we have to do. Day in, day out. Well, Marianne, it's been great talking with you. And, and again, thank you for 20 years of amazing service and ideas and collaboration with Vocal Essence. Um, any last words? Well, it's been a great ride and I wouldn't trade it for the world. So I've been honored to be a part of this organization. It's been a joy to work with Philip and I'm gonna relish the last however what, nine months, I have something like that I have left. So, and thank you for including me in this. I really appreciate it. Well, it's always good to get perspective on Philip. I think that's, you know. Especially with him in the room. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. All right, well, thank you too.